Welcome to a Profiles and in Leadership interview series. Uh, this is where pearls of wisdom are shared by those who lead. So we have John Childs with us today. John, thank you very much for being here. Really Glad appreciate your time. Dr. Childs is the founder and CEO of Evidence in Motion and a partner in Confluent Health, which includes Evidence in Motion, a network of 80 plus physical therapy clinics and Fit for Work, which helps employers decrease injuries and workmen's compensation costs. A graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, he completed his MBA at the University of Arizona and his PhD from the University of Pittsburgh. Having served 20 years in the Air Force, Dr. Childs has collaborated on more than $10 million in grant funding and published more than 150 scientific papers. He is an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year finalist, a San Antonio healthcare hero, and the youngest ever APTA fellow. You can follow Dr. Childs on Twitter and other social media at ChildsJD. John, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, it's so this is kind of your hometown, yeah, San Antonio. Yeah, yeah so. I was joking with someone earlier. It's tough having a conference in your hometown. I'm trying to keep up my normal uh, <laughs> work schedule and uh, sort of be available. Exactly, yeah, you get home late at night exactly. and your family's like, where are you? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So when you, um, did you know that you wanted to be a physical therapist when you entered the Air Force Academy? You know, I, I really didn't. When I went to the academy, um, uh, well, first of all, I said what everybody says when they want to go to one of the service academy. If, if you go to Air Force, you say you want to fly. Whether you want to fly or not, it's a different story, but that's what you say you want to do. <laughs> right. What I really wanted to do was originally go to medical school, actually. Uh, that was uh, something I had been wanting to do. It's kind of a kid, career in healthcare, that sort yeah. of thing. Um, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say, you know, I got picked up, so the academy selected me to go to medical school, but I didn't do well enough on the MCAT to get into medical school. <laughs> okay. So I got into a few small uh, schools, but I really wanted to go big time, you know, kind of the Harvard, yeah, I mean, I really wanted to go all in, and I just yeah. didn't score well enough. So uh, a friend of mine uh, introduced me to uh, PT school, and uh, the Army uh, Baylor program right. accepts two service academy members into that uh, each okay. year from the Air Force. And so I applied for one of those slots and got picked up, and so um, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I accidentally ended up in yeah. PT, but looking back, it was obviously it was the best, a good move, uh, good best move. move ever made. So what's the most, most important thing that you learned as a PT in the military? You know, I think uh, probably the biggest things I, I learned is, uh, number one, just the obviously the contributions that our, our military members make in defense yeah. of their country. Uh, certainly over the last 10 to 15 years, you know, you see some of the most severe, you know, kinds yeah. of uh, wounds that uh, anyone could experience. Uh, I vividly remember uh, going down to the Center for the Intrepid, which is here in San Antonio, and um, being down there one day, uh, seeing a quadruple amputee in, oh, a, in a wheelchair for the first yeah. time ever. And even as a healthcare provider, you know, you're accustomed to seeing wounds and those kinds of things, right. but you see severity of injury that would just, that shocks even the oh, most, um, um, you know, uh, seasoned person. Seasoned yeah. person, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, I learned to obviously appreciate that. Uh, and then just the discipline. I mean, just right. the, you know, um, the, the, the rigor of a schedule and seeing patients and, you know, the military is all about, um, uh, like a lot of places, you know, productivity and getting people in and out. Right. Uh, the culture of uh, PT in the military is a very pro, you know, musculoskeletal, direct right. access. So that was uh, probably one of the biggest things I think that has transferred since then is just an appreciation for the role of the therapist. So it's kind of the primary care way that we all want to practice you know, and musculoskeletal injuries, right? It, it is, so in the DOD system, the Department yeah. of Defense, it's a single payer uh, right. system, uh, financial interests are not as much at 
play. Spine surgeons yeah. in the military don't get paid more for doing yeah. you know, 50 surgeries versus 20 surgeries. Um, so when there's a gray area, um, they're probably not going to operate. Uh, yeah. Similarly speaking, there's usually really strong relationships between primary care and PT and orthopedics and PT. Sure. Orthopedics doesn't want to see a lot of patients it doesn't have to see, right? right? Um, right. The, the incentive structures are different, so yeah. they're happy to collaborate and partner so with. So uh, are you optimistic that that style will reach the the common people outside the military, or what? I mean, we've been talking about it for how long, right? You know, I, I you know, it's the age-old question. I think as healthcare payment uh, finally starts to shift around value-based payment, and right. we get interested in outcomes and costs and those sorts of things, as opposed to strict fee-for-service, um, I think our best days are ahead of us because clearly PT uh, adds value into that system. And so as the incentive structure shifts uh, towards that, I think PT will really yeah. stand to benefit. Okay. And as founder of Evidence in Motion, uh, what was your vision for this new idea? And have you reached that vision or are you, you still going forward? Uh, just fill us in a little bit about how you came up with the idea and where, where it's yeah, going. Yeah, fair question. So I did my uh, PhD at the University of Pittsburgh back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, Evidence-based practice was a brand new uh, word uh, then. Right. Um, I had a world-class research experience, um, you know, doing a lot of clinical trials, working with people like Tony Delito and Julie sure. Fritz and, you know, all those folks. Great experience, and Pittsburgh really prided itself on doing clinical research. It really uh -huh. understood that you can't live in the ivory tower, you need to yeah. publish research, it's actually gonna inform clinical practice, and yeah. that's how you change and influence the profession. Uh, and, and so uh, EIM was really born out of that desire to come mm -hmm. alongside clinicians and helping them translate research and evidence into, uh, into practice. Yeah, and so, has it, has it reached that vision that you had, or is it still evolving? Is it still going more and more? You know, I'd more? say, uh, like any organization, as you know, uh, yeah. you've never arrived. The day right. you think you've arrived is <laughs> you're the day you're, uh, you're really in trouble. Right. Uh, but, you know, we've, um, uh, as I look back over the last 10 years, it's been fun to uh, see the number of uh, certification programs, residency right. programs, and fellowship programs. We really pride ourselves on the ability of our students to be working full-time uh, and complete our programs, you know, in the evenings and on the weekends, at least the online portion. Right, and then right. they come on site for the hands-on uh, sure. components. So they're able to really um, dive deeply into their learning. You know, you go to most continuing education courses, let's say it's just a weekend course, the, the odds are you're going to show up on Monday morning and pretty much practice the same way you did on right, Friday. Right. Uh, when you go through longer term degree programs, certificate programs, you actually have a chance to really fine-tune and practice shape and, yeah. how someone actually practices. Yeah. And so that's been a real, uh, we think, uh, win for us. So you have an evidence in motion, you have a multiple site PT company, I know in Texas, and I think it's probably beyond Texas as well. You have Confluent Health, you're involved in the South College uh, Education uh, PT program. And uh, how does this all fit together? And, and how do you juggle this many balls? And, and you know, I think we all hear evidence in motion, we all hear about Confluent Health but I don't know, a lot of us know what it all, how it fits together. Sure, you bet. So uh, back when we first started uh, EIM, uh, you know Larry, right. um, uh, Larry's clinics in, in Louisville were our first customer on the EIM side. So right. uh, he was actually a customer. Uh, we sort of experimented with some of these early ideas. They seemed mm -hmm. to work and influence. And so uh, we put two and two together and said, hey, let's try to take this out to other practices. Um, but as part of that, we really needed our own platform of clinics to sort of experiment with, right? We, okay. um, you know, we didn't want to take the alpha version to our best customers. We, you know, we want to take the, you know, more well-refined developed version. Right. So uh, that was the genesis of where uh, Texas Physical Therapy Specialists here in Texas uh, came from. Okay. Was um, a group of clinics to um, sort of experiment with and see if we could 
um, you know, really put our money where our mouth was. And yeah. that's one of the things that at AIM that we tell our customers all the time is, is you know, we're actually um, utilizing the very strategies that we're trying to sell you on. Right. We're actually a paying customer. Our clinics are paying, yeah. you know, fair market sure. value for the kinds of programs and services that yeah. EIM offers. And so um, it gives us, I think, some credibility uh, uh -huh. when we are out there introducing ourselves to other. You're in the trenches uh, as well. We're in the trenches as yeah, well. Yeah. And we, I tell people all the time, I view myself uh, more as a practice owner. Um, um, buying my own services yeah. than I do as the sort of talking head CEO of, of EIM. And how many clinics do you have now in Texas and as part of that group? We've got about 20 or so uh, okay. clinics in Texas, uh, and then we had a number of other um, uh, groups under different brands in right. other states, okay. uh, and then a number of us came together a couple years ago uh, and put that together up underneath uh, Confluent, Confluent Health. Health. Okay, right. okay, good. So what's uh, what's the next step in Confluent Health? Just keep growing what you're doing, or is there another uh, phase that you're going to implement at some point? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of um, of uh, you know uh, platform companies, if you will, there's a you know tons of uh, you know opportunity to grow and. Um, you know, there's a lot of interest in you know PT. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, you hear the the naysayers all the time complaining <laughs> about payment and all the challenges, and and, and they're certainly there. Sure. Uh, but when you look at um, you know private equity and other investors, they're very bullish they're, yeah, on the profession. Really so there's yeah. a lot of activity going on. Activity. You know, in the so it's a really we think historic time uh, to be in the in the profession. So you know we want to continue to um, you know operate day in and day out. I mean yeah. the day you forget your fundamentals, the day you get too focused on the future, uh, is the day you start going backwards. So you gotta you know you gotta, you gotta mine do, the, yeah. the the bakery if you will, and 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 we just think if you you know if you, you know, execute on the vision every single day, you'll you'll end up in yeah. a in a good place. You're gonna grow anyway. You're, you're gonna grow. Yeah. So your organization has always emphasized world class customer service. You guys have talked about it a lot. So how do you teach and mentor the new professional that joins your organization with that concept? Yeah, no, um, you know, Larry was a real uh, pioneer, I think, in, in really uh, bringing customer service into the physical therapy um, uh, space. Right. You know, all, every operation delivers quality care, right? You see right. it in everybody's yeah. tagline. And so it's mm. almost a commodity that, that you deliver quality care. Sure. And, and yeah. most patients think everybody delivers quality care. and so. One opportunity to really differentiate yourself is delivering red carpet, you know, customer service, and and that's one area. And healthcare, you're not, you're not, healthcare providers really struggle with that. You know, you got white yeah. walls, white coats, uh, <laughs> yeah. waiting long lines, and those kinds of things. So when yeah. you can deliver a really high touch service, uh, it really helps differentiate your practice. Shows that you care. Um, we take the um, uh, position that you know soft skills like caring and empathy have really been underemphasized. Right. We've gotten maybe too focused on technical skills, and uh -huh. you know my hands are, are, are more. I can do more fancy techniques than you can, and those sorts of things. And right. skills certainly matter, um, but if you don't do them in the context of empathy and caring and compassion, you're not going right. to optimize the outcome. So we mm -hmm. uh, implement a lot of, um, of training in the early phase of uh -huh. therapists' employment with us, from leadership training to customer service training. Um, to care excellence training, empathy caring. We have a, a, a course that Larry uh, helped put together called Called to Care that all of our therapists go through. Uh -huh. um, so you know you get what you emphasize. So right. if you create a culture where the expectation is mm -hmm. caring and empathy and high touch service, 
Um, that's what is it easily embraced by your new people? I mean, do they love it, or do they just you kind of have to bring them along to that? Well, point? you know, I think it's a it, it takes a little bit of a shift uh, mm -hmm. in academic programs. The soft skills we think are are, are underemphasized. So you largely recruit these therapists who are really focused on their hands-on skills, right? And they think learning the next fanciest sort of you know magic bullet treatment is going to be the panacea for all their patients. Right. So you almost have to reverse engineer them a little bit and take them back to their their roots about right. you know what their what their mom and dad maybe taught them growing up about using their manners and showing up on time and and uh, you know in this red carpet service you know I'm not talking about waterfalls behind the <laughs> yeah. counter and cappuccino in the, yeah. in the waiting rooms I mean it's just plain old fashioned being kind yeah. and on time and just over uh, delivering with respect to what the customer uh, wants. Yeah, we talked to Bridget earlier today and, and you're one of the few companies, I think, uh, my company was one as well, that really emphasized and had a very structured leadership development program. But that's not the norm. Right. And so uh, what, what's your philosophy on the leadership development side beyond the customer service? Yeah, you bet. You know, there's always the debate about is leadership, you know, born? Is it, can it be trained? Uh, and we sort of bank on the idea that mm. leadership can be trained. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are individuals that have some unique, maybe genetic traits that predispose them to be a leader. Uh, but we invest a lot of resources into various uh, leadership tracks over the therapist's first several uh, year with us. Right. Um, uh, we have a program we call PTville, uh, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I know you guys at TAI had a similar yeah. sort of leadership development exactly. track. Uh, all the way up to um, like our executive program in private practice management, um, right. which is almost looks like an executive MBA of sorts, right. specifically geared for practice managers. To teach that skill, that's yeah. awesome. So you are known as a thought leader um, you know, in our profession and uh, one who's not shy to voice your opinion on what we need to do as a profession. So what has to change in the next few years for physical therapy to be in the game of healthcare reform where we can actually bring down healthcare costs? You bet. Um, well, I'll focus, I guess, my response um, on where I'm spending most of my energies these days, and that's uh -huh. in um, really trying to reduce the uh, cost burden of entry-level uh, DPT and okay. improve the quality. Right. Um, so we think that um, you know higher education is going through a, a you know we, we can't continue to sustain the tuition increases we've seen in higher ed. Right. And as a profession, we're likely losing some of our best applicants to other healthcare professions because the costs simply don't make sense. Right. Now the good news is most folks who get into PT don't we don't get into it for the money, but the return on investment still has to it's make some be there. common sense it's sense. It's got to be there, sure. And so um, you know, we think that uh, one of the fundamental things we have to do to optimize our chance for long-term success as a profession is lower the cost of education, improve clinical education. Clinical education hasn't really been touched yeah. in the last 50 years. So as part of our uh, two-year accelerated blended mm -hmm. model that we've been working right. on, we really want to try to standardize clinical education, mm -hmm. make it more predictable, and provide a therapist to the workforce um, that's not so burdened with debt that they're expecting to you know, right. make eighty, ninety thousand dollars as a new therapist. And it's, the clinical side, I mean, you're, you know, the old system is basically counting on the, the charity in a way of the physical therapists that are in the field to educate these students. Yep. And so this is another way with your, you know, with your program that you're getting uh, them to not only generate some revenue, but be part of the staff earlier on. No, that's exactly right. I mean, and I'll put my academic hat on and say, 
know, the problem of clinical education is when we send students out to clinics, we our strategy mm -hmm. as an academics as a whole is to sort of just hope and pray that the student learns something. Yeah. That's not much of a strategy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, we really want to uh, have a strategy for, in, in a way to measure that the students are actually mm -hmm. making progress, delivering the outcomes that you would expect. Um, and ultimately, we think um, transitioning into residency training is really the wave of the future. Yeah, and you, uh, we had the Graham sessions earlier this year in January in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, and you debated with uh, Jim Gordon from uh, the USC program, which would be more of a traditional program, and uh, it just rave reviews on it. People loved hearing it because it was, uh, I mean, you're both eloquent speakers, you're both really smart, you both really believe in what you do, and it was just a really great, uh, um, you know, great exchange of ideas, so thank you for that. I think people oh, really enjoyed bet. it at that. Yeah, so. no, and even even to our, our critics, and I'm, I'm not suggesting Jim is necessarily a critic, but we learn a lot from that, so we enjoy yeah. hearing sort of the opposition uh, viewpoints, if you will, because it makes you better. If you're yeah. willing to listen, um, exactly. you find little pearls that you can twist and change and improve upon. Yeah, and that's what the Graham Sessions is all built on, is it, you know, come and, and say your thing, but but more importantly, listen, because you can right. learn a lot from that. So do, do you think PTs are territorial and kind of resist working together and collaborating? Uh, and, and is this true in other professions too? You know, sometimes we get so insular in our own little world, we don't know what other people do, but it seems like sometimes to collaborate together, uh, I'm not sure we do a good job of that. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I always say as PTs, we're sort of our own worst enemies. You know, we yeah. tend to be, a, um, you know, the good news is most of us are, are high empathy kinds of folks. We're generally caring. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, it makes us weak when it comes to things like advocacy. We don't really stand up for ourselves as uh -huh. much as maybe other professions would. Um, we've had too many turf battles for too long internally. You know, we debate right. over this manual therapy camp versus this camp, and you know, should we be doing teaching dry needling in entry level education or not? And and really, um, our 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 battles, if you will, are much more outside of, of yeah. healthcare, and we need to have a much more multidisciplinary uh, sort mm -hmm. of a focus. I mean, yeah. you know, the days of us, you know, fighting with athletic trainers and massage therapists, and it's like, do we need to have another exhausting <laughs> exactly. you know, battle? We've got exactly. plenty of things that we can work on in our own house, if you will. Um, to really uh, show value to the healthcare profession. So are you optimistic that we're there? Are we starting to get in those areas where we're reaching out to do that, or are we stuck in the old way? Yeah, you know, I think we're making a lot of progress. I've okay. been really uh, pleasantly surprised. Um, you know, I was glad to see Justin, uh, you know, appointed as CEO. Uh -huh. He's got, a, I think, a terrific vision for where we need to head as a, as a profession. Right. Um, I made a comment to my earlier today, and it's just the nature of the, I think, a lot of professional mm -hmm. associations you know, unfortunately, academics are some of the only people that have enough time to be, get really involved yeah. uh, in an order, you know, really, really involved. Right. And so, you know, I was glad to hear Justin say, you know, one of the things he really wants to change is just reduce some of the meeting structure so right. that more right. busy practice-minded people get more diversity within the leadership. Yeah. And, and I think that our, um, you know, with folks like Sharon and others are mm -hmm. really starting to uh, point us, I think, in a very positive yeah, uh, direction. It's a good point because if you are run on a volunteer organization, but the time commitment becomes so great that you you can't do it. Yeah. Then you can only have a small group yeah, of people. Yeah, and that there's can do heroic that. people like you that will step outside <laughs> yeah. of your practice as a CEO and you know lead you know the private practice section and those sorts of things. But but it takes more than just the most yeah. heroic top one percent. Mm -hmm. You really need to get leadership down into the you know, the, the, the average uh, therapist, if you will, yeah. so that more people have an opportunity to be a part of the, well, affecting the, the change. Well, the story I love to tell is that when uh, I was private practice section president, we talked for years about having this 
uh, program that went over a year long to teach people how to be better business leaders within uh, physical therapy. And uh, we're a volunteer organization. We tried some things at the University of Baltimore. We tried some other things, and we just couldn't get it off the ground. And finally, I said, we're a volunteer organization. We don't have the time it takes to put into this. That's when I met Larry yeah. and you and just said, can you help us? Let's partner. And you guys had it up and running. I mean, I remember that conversation was in February, and that program was up and running. I was in the first cohort yeah. in September of that year. That's, yeah. that's the difference, because you have people full time uh, focused on it, ready to go, and, and you can only expect so much out of a volunteer organization, I yep, think. You so, bet. Yeah. Describe what you think would is, is going to be a typical private practice uh, uh, setting in 10 years. You know, I think, uh, first of all, um, unlike a, you hear a lot of people think the days of private practice, the independent mm -hmm. small private practice is dead. I, I don't feel that way at all. Mm -hmm. I, I think there will always be a place for highly customized, high service, um, you know, best in class uh, small practices. Uh, if you deliver uh, value and high quality care, you will, you will not have a problem thriving into the future. Yeah. I do think um, those practices have to think more multidisciplinary. I right. think we'll see, uh, if you believe that some form of the accountable care organization and bundled payment is going to, um, it's going to maybe shift a few different versions, but you know we're going to mm -hmm. see more value-based payment. Yeah. So you're going to have to uh, participate in the larger mm -hmm. ecosystem. You're going to have to be willing to do joint ventures with hospitals and other, um, right. you know, potentially you might hire other um, healthcare professionals onto your team. You might hire a massage therapist. You might hire a physiatrist. You might, you know, and so I think those practices have to think more than just right. PT. And even be willing to collaborate more with physical therapists themselves because as a sen single standalone clinic, what you just described is going to be hard to do. Yep, that's exactly so, right. Yeah, so yeah. whether you're in a network or some other type of relationship, you know, that could be a way to, to stay independent, but yet, you know, uh, collaborate on these bigger issues. Yep, you bet. Yeah. So. And, and, you know, you hear this all the time, Steve, you know, um, a lot of uh, private practices sort of have an aversion against larger practices. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, that not that a signal of some level of value and success that's being added into the marketplace? I mean, yeah. it seems to me that's a good thing for uh, us as a profession yeah. um, um, to, to see that. Yeah, definitely. So what would be your pearl of wisdom to our listeners here today if they want to pursue a leadership position different than what they're doing now? How do you go about doing that? You know, I, you know, everybody maybe tells this story in the context of you know their own growth and you know yeah. development. Um, I think it's it's through uh, mentorship. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you hear a lot of people talk about networking, and, and yes, uh, networking matters. It does help who you know, but it's more than just me knowing you and you knowing me. It's right. me looking at someone like you as a potential mentor, and and then you know um, adding value to your life. So if you right. if you want to get somewhere, I, I say, well, find someone who's where you kind of want to be, attach yourself to the hip, don't just yeah. Twitter them and be a social media fan, Right. actually add value to their life, come right. alongside them and see what sort of rate limiting factors they have, and see if they'll throw you a few projects your way, yeah. um, don't care about whether you get paid or not, yeah. um, over deliver, and just keep doing that over and over and over, and eventually they're going to find you indispensable to their life, and, and you'll yeah. find yourself on a path to opportunities you never would have imagined. Just be willing to ask. Just I mean, uh, ask. you know, especially in this profession, I think there's such a giving profession. I can't imagine if somebody came up and said, "Would you be willing to mentor me in these areas?" I can't imagine somebody yeah. saying no. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's you just, know I, I, I'm notorious <laughs> for giving out my cell phone on like podcasts and saying, you know, any yeah. students or anybody, if you, you know, if you ever want to meet or, you know, here's my cell phone, here's my email. Yeah. And, you know, you'd be, I'm always surprised at how few individuals actually pick up the phone mm -hmm. and call. Yeah. But you know, here's what's interesting. Those few who do, they're, they're gold mine kinds of folks, right? These are yeah. the next generation of leaders. Right. I want to get, I want to know who they are and I want to come alongside them and mentor them. Mm -hmm. And yes, out of a selfless heart, right? We all want to give back, but those yeah. are also the same individuals that are going to be able to add value to your life and help support you in some of the bigger right. uh, picture items of things you want to do. And so if you're on the other end of that, uh, as somebody asking to, to you know, you to mentor them, uh, describe a little bit about your philosophy of mentor because mentoring doesn't mean you got all the questions, all the answers. Oh, yeah. Because basically, it's just somebody to help lead you. To discover it more yourself. Oh way, yeah. Right? So you know, reverse mentoring is a you know is a big word these days, and yeah. especially because on the EIM side, we work with a lot of students. We have to stay really, really in touch with the needs of the millennials and those students and what right. they want and what they're interested in. So I love mentoring young students because I learn from them on you know what makes them tick and yeah. what kind of resources and things that they need to you know to best uh, to best learn so right. mentorship mm. when it works well is always is always a two-way right. street um, you know sometimes I think mentorship gets much more of a one you know I'm, I'm the mentor you know students the mentee and it's this sort of one-way pipe right um, that doesn't last it doesn't last uh, yeah you know it's a it's a it's a two-way street yeah and just just being willing to to admit that you don't know yep. and to ask the questions and learn both ways because there's you know you and I you've said it a number of times already today you and I can learn a ton from a new professional oh absolutely and yeah. you know and, and sometimes younger therapists are surprised to know that I still have a coach I still have a lot of mentors that yeah. I work with very closely right. I consider myself a student in most all situations yeah. um, and so you know mentorship and learning never stops I saw I heard uh, the other day that somebody I really respect said anyone who's a CEO that doesn't have a coach is fooling themselves I <laughs> yeah. thought that was pretty interesting yeah, it's very true. because a lot of people think oh you reached the CEO now you're you're there and you know it all and as you, you and I both know that's not true yeah well you know as a leader it's easy to get a sort of above we're above the tree line a little bit and yeah. you can start to believe everything you think and as soon yeah. as you start to believe everything you think you know you're you're, you're in trouble yeah so you've got to continue to stay humble stay hungry you know to learn yeah. and uh, be willing to be wrong yeah exactly exactly and learn from failure because we're all going to fail. That's right. That's and that's how you learn. So, yeah. well, John, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this. Um, uh, you're a great leader. Uh, I, I so appreciate your advocacy for our profession, and I just want to thank you very much for being here. So, Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, great. Steve. Enjoyed it. Great. And thanks to VGM for uh, letting us uh, film today in their booth here at the Combined Sections meeting in San Antonio, Texas, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you. You bet.